Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome back to Washington Post Live after the long Labor Day weekend. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Roth, Wesleyan University's president, who's here to talk to me about his college, his university's decision to end legacy admissions and also other issues around broadening access to higher education. President Roth, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're delighted to have you, and I want to ask right away, why now? I gather you've been thinking about ending legacy admissions for a while, but what spurred the, the actual decision? Well, a few years ago, probably five or so years ago, um, it occurred to me, probably because Hopkins uh, very publicly did away with their uh, legacy admissions program, that it really wasn't a defensible program. And uh, we were giving preference to people because they were related to us, <laughs> but uh, that's not a very good reason. And that we at Westland for a long time, since really the late 60s, early 70s, have been talking about making the campus more diverse and working to make the campus more diverse. So it seemed then that we should do away with what had been a pretty small program. I mean, most of my interaction with the program was with alumni whose kids didn't get in. The, you know, the great majority of the people whose children applied, uh, they didn't get in. And so they were they said, well, you have a legacy advantage and we still didn't get our kids in. So I, I went to a group of youngish advisors that we have and thinking they would be an easy group to convince. And they were very vocal saying, well, we, we want this for our kids. And they were more diverse and more uh, alumni of color. Uh, and at the time, although I didn't agree with the reasoning, just that we want this, <laughs> uh, uh, I thought, well, they're in other problems in American education, um, and not to take that on at the time. When I read the Supreme Court opinions uh, in this uh, affirmative action case, all of which emphasized the unfairness of using affiliation uh, as, a, as a vehicle for making admissions decisions, I thought, here we are using affiliation with a privileged group, our own alumni. Uh, and we're not being allowed to use affiliation with a group that's been discriminated against for centuries and 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 continues to suffer the harmful effects of of racism in this country. I, I thought we can't just continue this program. At the same time, I wanted to send a signal to the to whoever I could reach that Westing really is committed to uh, um, having a diverse campus. We we will follow the law, but. Um, getting rid of this program seemed to send the right signal to other people that we will have intergenerational family connections to Westland, but they'll get in on their own, as most of them have anyway. But we I, I really ask you, how big diversity. a group is it? How big a group is it? And, and how does it compare to, say, Yale, which also has a legacy admissions program? Well, um, ours is quite small. So it's, you know, say 7% of uh, people who matriculate maybe would have been uh, uh, sons and daughters of alums. And then most of them, but let's say half of them would have gotten in on their own. So it, it's pretty it's pretty small for us. 
compared to the um, older Ivy League schools, um, very small. So I, I know the statistics I've read in the Washington Post and elsewhere about <laughs> Yale and Harvard, they, they're much, much larger percentage. And, um, you know, I have read Harvard professors in particular say things like, well, they get in because they're superior people, because we have taken superior people and genetics, et cetera. I mean, I think these are horrific arguments. If they are true, you don't need a legacy preference. You'll still have lots of sons and daughters of alumni. But the data that of, of Raj Chetty's group, that you know, I know he was on your program not long ago, it shows pretty clearly that there's really is an advantage at those schools that you, you if you don't get if, if you you won't get into one of the other schools you applied to in the Ivy League if you got into the your parents' Ivy League school. So, well, I'm really glad you used the Washington Post for sources, <laughs> but I have to ask you about the the argument people make that that fostering these intergenerational connections helps build uh, loyalty to the, to the school and also for fundraising purposes. Um, some people feel it, it's key. It, what do you say to that? It, it does it does build loyalty, but remember, even at these schools with large legacy programs, uh, most of the, the children of alumni are rejected. <laughs> so it's very hard to ask Grandma Jane to support Wesleyan when we've just rejected her granddaughter. If we rejected her granddaughter and we say we gave her an advantage, that's over. <laughs> so I, I, I just and and I think I've said this to other reporters. The idea that the wealthiest schools in America are the ones that have to worry about fundraising in this regard is obscene. These, these schools are the ones that don't actually have to have that worry. Loyalty is really great. If, you're, if your parents went to Wesleyan and you wanna to go to Wesleyan, I will embrace you, but you can get it on your own. And if you don't get it on your own, you can go to another really good school. There are plenty of great schools um, and I think our alumni at Wesleyan uh, will be more supportive of the university because we're doing the right thing. They, and, and they won't be supportive because we gave them something in return. That's not philanthropy. That's, I think, called bribery in, outside of academia. Right. You have said that doing away with legacy admissions is the easy step and that there are harder steps. And you referred already to the Supreme Court's affirmative action case Tell me what you're doing to try to broaden access to Wesleyan University. Yes, thank you for that question. So we, we have for years worked to increase the number of veterans on campus uh, for about a decade with the Posse Foundation. And, and now we've, we're working with uh, warriors and scholars and other groups to facilitate the transfer from community colleges uh, of, of, of military veterans and their and, and that's 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 made an, an interesting impact on our campus over the last dozen years or so. We are working hard to raise the Wesleyan flag, but also schools like Wesleyan, highly selective colleges and universities in Title I high schools, that is uh, high schools where there's a high poverty rate. We're offering free hybrid classes in those schools through the National Educational Equity Foundation and we have Wesleyan faculty and what the students as TAs doing uh, courses online, plus a teacher uh, at the school. The idea is to get free college credit to students in high poverty high schools. First of all, they get a credit they can transfer and save time and money. But also they know, hey, I can go to a place like Wesleyan. I'll, I'll be fine there or an Ivy League school. 
And in fact, if you don't have any money, it's free to go to Wesleyan or to those schools. Uh, they're very expensive for people who can afford them. But for people without economic resources, they're either free or practically free. And so we want to get that message out. We want to do more communication with rural parts of the United States. Uh, that, that, you know, it's, it's an old uh, saw now that we, we that schools like mine, we do very well on the coasts, but we don't do as well attracting people from the, the middle of the country. And we're trying very hard to do that in, in the Midwest and in Texas, in Arizona, um, uh, and, and places where we traditionally didn't get as many students. So we are getting students from many of the more states. We've also started a program in Africa. For the last 30 years, many students have come to Wesleyan and schools like Wesleyan uh, from East Asia. We had a, uh, a scholarship program for East Asian students for many years, and we still do. Uh, we're starting an African scholars program. This year, we have our first cohort of about a dozen students from Africa who have financial need. We have no merit scholarships. They have financial need, and we offer them a full scholarship and support to go home, support for internships, with the idea that they will return to their home countries and become important members of those communities and leaders of those communities and create a virtuous circle like many schools have done with East Asian countries. So those are some of the things we're working on to, to maintain diversity. We also work with a lot of community-based organizations like QuestBridge and Prep for Prep and ABC that have deep ties in communities uh, where there are many students of color and, and they help connect those people with fine uh, colleges and universities uh, uh, around the country. So in, in trying to promote this kind of geographic diversity, how intentionally are you looking at the culture wars, the huge divides that have, have been rifts across this country and have become so clear in the last uh, 10 years, let's say? Yeah, well, the culture wars are, I think, sometimes I think they're, they're ginned up by politicians to try to just, you know, uh, uh, what's the energize the base, I guess, is the phrase. I think we need more cultural diversity, more debate and argument on college campuses. About a decade ago, I published something, alas, in the Wall Street Journal, calling for uh, an affirmative action program for conservatives at schools like Wesleyan. Because, you know, we have a bias towards uh, uh, liberals and, and, and people who think of themselves as progressives, I believe. And we ought to correct for that by recruiting people of very different points of view from different parts of the country and different parts of the world. That includes students of faith, of very different kinds of faith, who um, sometimes were not all that comfortable at secular institutions. And I wanted them to see that Wesleyan can be a great home for them. In order to do that, you have to have a university community that really values free speech and the kinds of debates that end in more conversation and inquiry rather than acrimony. And so I, I believe the colleges and universities should play an important role in the cultural war by making a plea for culture peace. What colleges and universities should do is not become like actors in the culture war. They should be places for culture peace where people can actually talk about issues that matter to them in ways where they learn from someone whose views are different from their own. And we need more of that on college campuses. I want to ask you more about that in a second. But first, just back to this point about finances. The federal student loan program is going to be up in October. People will be paying off uh, money they hadn't had to think about since, I think, March 2020. How did college and university get to be so darned expensive? 
That's a great question. And I think my failure, and I've been a college president for a long time now, more than 20 years, I feel like I have not uh, cracked that affordability nut. We, we, we raise lots of money for financial aid, so it could be free for you if you don't have any money, but it's still a very expensive thing we're doing. <laughs> Small classes, great technology, lots of opportunities. It's, it's very expensive. And so, you know, the full price for Wesleyan is somewhere around $86,000. I checked just before coming on your show to make sure the average grant for someone who gets a grant is like 60,000. So the sticker price is very high if you have money, um, according to the federal formula. And, and uh, but there's a lot of aid to be had as well. It's gotten that expensive because people want more out of their university experience. I can't tell you how many parents just want more and more stuff for their college and uh, college sons and daughters, whether it's camping trips, extra technology, uh, travel uh, experiences, all of which are, are fine. Uh, but the only way we have found to dramatically cut the cost of college is by compressing the time. Right now, colleges, university students, they go to school for around half the year. If you, if we were, are more mindful of getting high school students who are able to do the work, college credit while they're in high schools, and we make that available, three-year programs available in colleges, we can cut off 20, 25% of the whole cost from day one. But students and their families have to be willing to say, I'll go to college for six semesters, not eight. And although I've been making this case for the last 12 years, I did it when I was a kid to save my father money. Um, uh, most parents say, no, I, I want my kid to have the, the full experience, but that's just full by convention. If we, had, if we started off with six semesters, everybody would want six semesters. We started off with eight. And so they keep wanting more in those eight semesters. And, and that keeps the price quite high, I'm afraid. Um, at schools like ours, highly selected parents, schools. Do the parents come to you directly and ask more, or are you just worried that they'll go off to Amherst or some other great college or university instead of coming to you? Is that why there's always more and more on offer? Uh, well, I, I think there, there's some of that. There's some of that. I mean, I think there's, I definitely get people saying to me at at Princeton, instead of looking at slides of Italian Renaissance painting, they get on a plane and go to Florence. Uh, I, 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 there is competition in these schools, so you know you, 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 you that that's, that certainly sounds attractive. I think it's totally unnecessary, and I think there are diminishing returns on our educational investment when we spend that much on the privileged few. I mean, we're talking about a very small percentage of Americans who go to places like Princeton and Amherst and Wesleyan. Most people don't. We would do so much better if we invested in pre-K, if we invested in elementary school, if we invested in public colleges and universities to make them stronger, to pay their faculty fairly. Schools like Wesleyan and Ivy League schools, they'll be fine. We offer great education and, and very good financial aid and very few loans. But what we really need to do is stop paying so much attention to that, to people like me, and pay more attention to the community colleges and public universities. Just quickly, and I don't know that we can adjust this, this math very quickly, but you're an alum of Wesleyan yourself. What kind of fees did you or your family pay when you attended compared to now? Can you give a sort of ballpark comparison? 
I, I can't. I just remember that to my parents, it seemed like a lot. My father was a furrier. He made fur coats. His father was a furrier. My mother was a singer. She sold clothes out of our basement when things were bad. Um, and they, but they did fine. They, they saved money so my brother uh, and I could go to college. Um, and, and, but I really felt when I got to Wesleyan in 1975, that if I could graduate in three years, that would be what, what I should do for my family. They never asked me to do that. Um, uh, and and um, I, my parents also said, uh, you can go to graduate school if somebody else pays for it, you know, if you get a fellowship uh, and you can always get a job later. I mean, there was a different feeling, I think, about, I, he, my, I always remember my dad said to me, your uncle drives a cab. If, you, if it doesn't work out at Princeton for graduate school, he could fix you up with a, a route as a cab driver. And that attitude of you'll figure it out, that's harder these days in a winner take all economy where the effects of inequality seem to me today much more brutal than they did when I was a student in the 70s. I want to come back to this issue of free speech on campus, which is such a hotly debated one right now. And you have the West speech and tell me the title of it, the West Free Speech Initiative. Is that right? Well, we are, we are, we're working on a free speech in this initiative and a de democracy in action uh, initiative. And okay. uh, we've been talking about uh, free speech and intellectual diversity. I mean, free speech is really easy if everybody has the same view, right? You just hear an echo right. chamber. But we want people with different points of view and not just kind of entertainers who come here to rile up people, but serious scholars with different points of view to uh, express the, those points of view. And and also to hire faculty whose backgrounds are quite different from the, the, the standard graduate school in the humanities or sciences. And so we've hired people from the military academies and, and they've become very popular teachers here at, at, at Wesleyan. Uh, so free speech is, is a fundamental aspect of, of the university. I wrote a book called Safe Enough Spaces. I think you, there are always some limits on what people should say to each other. But the default position is free speech. My passion right now is to make sure that our students and students all over the country not only have free speech, but they get activated to participate in the elections to, that will be coming in the next two years. Whether it's their school boards, whether it's the zoning commission, the, the little the towns they're in, or the national federal elections. We need students to participate in the electoral system College students are so cynical in many cases about our government, and you can understand why. Adults are cynical about it too. But if we don't get young people to participate in the electoral system, I do fear that that system will be taken over by people who don't want any participation. So, so I have to ask you're you. You're helping them do that. So I have to ask you, do you think colleges have actually failed on their duty to teach civics? I mean, I'm thinking about the, the Stanford initiative that's out there right now. You're talking about using democracy, but actually teaching people what it means to be a citizen, what the rule of law is, what government's responsibilities are, how it's organized. Are you doing that head on? Have colleges yes, I, we, gotten this we, we are We are doing it head on and we're doing it... Uh, I mean, it's very easy to say when you see the failure of American uh, civic institutions, to, you need someone to blame. Colleges are always there. I just wrote this little book called The Student, and it's about how we always project our hopes and our anxieties and our complaints on students. So we can say colleges failed, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of failure to go around. 
in American ignorance about our own government and its institutions. It should be happening in high school. It should continue in college. I feel in, on, in this campus, it's a very political campus, uh, students are engaged. We have a we are, we have the local voting booth is on campus, the local uh, voting center for the mayor's election, for the state elections and federal elections. We spend a fair amount of time reminding students what it means to be citizens, because if students learn how to be better citizens, they'll be better students. They'll be they'll be better community members. And it's a virtuous circle. And, I, and I'm working with a group of college and university presidents and the Institute for Citizens and Scholars on a democracy and free speech initiative in this regard. Some of my colleagues are very interested in free speech in campus. I am too, but I'm even more interested in getting students out to knock on doors and talk to their fellow citizens about participating in the next elections. So I want to ask you about where you draw lines, where you draw lines on inviting speakers, um, and also where you draw lines on encouraging free speech among students and then disciplining those who cross lines. How do you come up with these very difficult uh, decisions, these demarcations? Yes, it's a great question. I should say most of the time it works out pretty straightforwardly and you never hear about it, of course, in the press because it works out. Um, I'll give you an example. I give a speech to uh, prospective students in the spring while they're deciding whether to come or not. So, of course, that's the time when people protest me most because so much is at stake. So student protesters, uh, there have been times where they surround me while I give the talk, but I can still give the talk. In other words, they, they have their signs right near me. They have their complaints or their issues, sometimes quite reasonable. Sometimes I find less reasonable, but it's, it's up to them. I can still do my talk. Uh, I've been at Wesley since 2007. I think it was one year. The students kind of interrupted me a few times. I really couldn't do the talk. So I went outside. I did the talk outside to everyone. It was actually very successful. The students, however, who did interrupt were disciplined. And at Wesleyan, there's a gradation. So you get points. And after a certain number of points, you get suspended. And that reminds people there are real consequences to these actions. We started with the help of a trustee who's a, a libertarian, um, a, a program for conservative religious libertarian speakers. And I've been to some of those sessions and they're quite animated to put it mildly, but they're animated by argument, not by noise. I had to introduce um, Justice Scalia some years ago. I thought personally, that Justice Scalia did more harm to the interpretation of the American Constitution than perhaps anyone in American history, at least since the 1800s. But I invited him because it's hard to argue he's there's someone more important. I had to introduce him. I introduced him civilly. After all, I could be wrong. I listened to his arguments. I wasn't convinced, but we had a good, he spent the whole day on campus. There were protests. But they were protests that showed that people were against his point of view. They did not prevent him from communicating his point of view. That's where we draw the line. So this debate obviously goes way beyond Wesleyan's campus. I can think of Florida yes. with debates over history. How do you speak to your own professors and what stance do you think professors should take more broadly when they are under pressure either from public officials or from students to change the content of their courses? 
Well, I, I think the, the, the academic freedom of a faculty member to teach the way she or he wants to teach is really fundamental. Uh, and at the same time, I think that many of my colleagues in the humanities and interpretive social sciences have, as I have, a, a progressive bias, a lefty bias. And so I try to correct for it in my classes by um, giving a sympathetic attention to conservative points of view and to classic texts in, in, in religion or conservative philosophy. Uh, and I talk to my faculty about this a lot. Most of them don't agree with me. Most of them don't think we have this bias. Or as some of my friends say, there are much worse problems. You have in Florida, people just censoring texts. You have around other parts of the country with banned books and libraries. And I say, yes, I know that, but that doesn't mean we should try to be better. And what I've had at Wesleyan is the people who think I am wrong to bring this up, I've asked them to speak at these meetings about that. And they are smart. They say, you're co-opting me. And I say, yes, I am. And they go ahead and do it. And we have real discussions of it. And I, I think, you know, I, I don't know that I'm quite sure I don't have the truth. But the only way we'll get better ideas if we get better at listening to people who don't agree with us. And I think there's broad agreement about that here. There's, there's not agreement about the specific things somebody you know, wants to learn, but there's broad agreement that sympathetic listening to people with whom you disagree is really important. There's also broad agreement that defending someone against harassment and brutal treatment is very important. And so sometimes there's a blur there, but most of the time it's pretty clear when someone is being harassed and not just being uh, engaged in conversation. Michael, before we finish, I want to talk about your book, The Student. You mentioned it earlier. It comes out, I think, in a week. Is that right? Yes. Tell me, what's the, what's the biggest takeaway? What message, key message, would you like people to take away from that text? Well, thank you for the question. It's, it's called The Student, A Short History, and, and, and it's... Um, it, it starts off with Socrates, Confucius, and Jesus, but it ends in the present, and it is pretty short. The key message is, in the modern period, the idea of being a student gets linked to the idea of freedom, because we want our students to think freely, to speak freely, and we know they'll learn more if they actually embrace freedom. And that's why we all want to be students sometimes. We want to feel that sense of exhilaration that comes to having an open future. And so this is a plea for keeping students linked to freedom because that helps all of us have a better future. And who's, it, who's its choice audience? Who's it aimed at? Are the students or at uh, teachers or the general public? It's, it's aimed at the general public. I, 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 I'm an academic, you know, so I may not have the best view of that. I mean, I try to write in an accessible way. It does go through the, you know, the, what was it like to be an apprentice in the early modern period? Why Ben Franklin was a failed apprentice? And it talks about some philosophers um, in women's colleges and uh, uh, historically black colleges and universities. Uh, but it's really aimed at anyone who thinks about learning because learning is about opening yourself up to new possibilities. And that's what I think we often mean by the word freedom. Uh, opening yourself up to what's possible, to live differently than you're living now, to think differently than you're thinking now. And when you're open in that way, you're a really good student. So last question. There's nothing more new right now than a college term starting with generative AI and particularly chat GPT on all our minds. 
what message have you got for your campus about what may change this year and what has to stay the same? That's a great question. I met with my students yesterday. I teach a kind of great books course uh, uh, this semester. And, and I said to them, the whole point of this course is to learn to think for yourself by wrestling with these great books. If you outsource your thinking, you are giving up a portion of your humanity, of your soul. Now, when the deadline's here and you have to write a paper for tomorrow, I understand that. If you're gonna <laughs> use these, this new technology, just cite it. Use it, cite it, and then make, but think for yourself. I, I urge them not to deprive themselves of this incredible opportunity they'd have to learn how to think for themselves alongside other people. And, and to outsource that would be like outsourcing your humanity or your, your, your faith or your love. And, and, and um, so I appeal to the angels, they're better angels. And then I say, and if we catch you plagiarizing, you will be severely punished. <laughs> <laughs> Great note to end on. I want to be a student, but I want to be a student and understand chat GPT as I go into it. Michael Roth, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.